Well, alright. I said we're gonna have a good day. Hey. Welcome to Rise with Emily and Audra. I'm Dr. Emily McRae. And I am Dr. Audra Rankin. We are educators, healthcare providers, and mothers who view the world as an unlimited learning opportunity. RISE is a podcast that highlights how we learn from the experiences and stories of others to create new perspectives that improve our own work. Listen with us, think with us, learn with us. And along the way, be inspired to rise up above your day-to-day. All right, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. Knock us down a thousand times in the mornings we will rise. This really shouldn't come as a surprise. Knock us down a thousand times in the mornings we will rise. Okay, shouldn't come as a surprise. Because every morning we will rise. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today with the Rise podcast. We are so excited to learn from you uh, this morning. So without further ado, please tell us a little bit more about yourself, where you're from, what's your educational background, and tell us a little bit about your path to becoming a musician. Yeah, well, I'm excited to be on a healthcare podcast as an artist, (laughs) creative musician. I was born in Lexington, Kentucky, and into a family that was very musical. My mom sang, my dad was a guitar player, grandpa was an old-time musician. Um, and in that family, I ended up picking up the cello when I was nine years old in public schools. Yay, public schools. And um, that, that instrument has taken me around the world and back, you know, performing with uh, artists like, you know, Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn, um, performing in places like Tibet and, and you know, farther flung. And that... Uh, it's been wonderful, and most importantly, it's provided a really wide range of experiences that I bring um, back home here to Kentucky to to try to help in the community in different ways. And activism and, and advocacy is a big part of my um, vernacular when I'm making art. So just trying to help make a positive impact with the environment and people's lives. Then when we started researching your career, we were blown away with all the different avenues that you've gone into with your art and music. And, you know, I think that a lot of times people associate your name with music in particular, um, but you have transitioned from songwriting into the stage and different types of apps and, um, you know, really kind of blended a lot of different careers, if you will, into one. So can you tell us a little bit about how that evolved? Because, you know, what strikes me about that is that it's true innovation, um, taking, you know, this gift that you have and putting it in all these different areas. Mm-hmm. Well, so just just recently, like in the last week or two, I've been listening to this book called Range, which is like the, you know, basically the power of being a generalist. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, you know, focuses on people that specialize early uh, and their stories versus the people who, you know, experiment and kind of develop their specialization or their focus area late in life. Um, and I've never had these words to describe myself, but I think I have always been someone who's worked to be good at being a jack of many trades rather than an ace of one. Right. Um, and I remember being very young and my grandfather, whose name was Elvis Henry Cornelius, <laughs> a great name, um, you know, his, his wisdom was like, don't, don't be a jack of all trades, really master one. Um, he was basically saying, specialize, get really, you know, start early and get really good at it and, and you'll excel in the world. And I remember responding to him even at a young age, nine, 12, something like that, saying like, well, what if me being an ace is being really good at lots of things? And it turns out that that gut level instinct is actually very important. Um, And maybe it was me kind of kind of looking ahead in the world because I mean at that time I was playing Nintendo right. you know Tetris riding my bikes and do, you know <laughs> video games were a big part of my life and that's something that had never really existed before and you know it was easy to see as you know game systems got better and better I could feel that and like internet was just starting to come out um, so I could feel that things were going to shift a lot so it felt really important to be good have a wide range of yeah. uh, things and so um, I think that expressed itself in my curiosity, um, but also in the intensity of, of my work. So within the arts, 
Um, obviously, I studied cello all the way through college. I have a cello performance degree from the University of Louisville. But along the way, I spent a long time, you know, experimenting with all the things that it takes to uh, produce art. So, you know, so there, there's the craft of making music, but then there's also the the production expertise to be able to record it, like we are this podcast, like right. all the things that go into that, like that's its own kind of art form and discipline. And then, um, you know, I really got into theater for a while. So getting on stage and dancing and learning about the theater environment, which is very much like a, a ship with all the, you know, the pulleys and the proscenium and then the lighting and how that's hung and how that's designed and programmed. Um, and I just found myself kind of really spreading out and what this book, uh, Range, tells me now that I was doing then was that I was sampling. Yeah. I was sampling a huge range of things and really getting into lots of them. And I think that sampling process continued once I got out of college uh, with touring with different bands um, and then making different things. Like obviously the industry standard when you are a composer, singer, songwriter is to make records, tour them and sell them. Mm Um, but there was something that felt a little narrow about that, even though it's not narrow in any way, because of record could be anything, right? <laughs> we think about Dark Side of the Moon, right. it's right. like, oh, okay, records <laughs> could really be anything. But it still felt too narrow for me. It felt kind of constrained. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would continue sampling. And as part of that process, I you know, did music tours by bicycle uh, around the, the country, trying to intentionally slow down to input as well as output on the road. Um, I experimented with making uh, a kind of a virtual reality music app called The Vanishing Point. That was actually the first virtual reality music app, I guess music video really, on any like mobile platform. And uh, then along the way I've experimented with lots and lots of different kinds of shows and lots and lots of different kinds of places. And I think that that has all kind of yielded to me, sitting here now at age 37, trying to figure out well, what what was the thing I was trying to get out of all of those mm-hmm. experiences. And because they were all, at the end of the day, more about gathering people than any particular type of art. And I think, uh, or I've come to understand that it was about togetherness. Like this feeling that I got when people got together and had a meaningful experience. Um, where they felt like they belonged, they were less lonely, um, they were part of something. Um, whether I was on stage or not, whether I'd curated the event or whether I was the artist at the event, I would get the same feeling and I continued to chase that feeling. And you know, where we sit now, certainly, hopefully, at the tail end of the <laughs> pandemic, right. um, we now understand that loneliness uh, a sense of belonging, you know, these are big things. I mean, Japan just instated a, 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 a what do they call them? A, uh, it's, it always reminds me of Harry Potter. It's like somebody who's the the head of loneliness. The, um, oh gosh, what's the word? It's like the prime, not the prime minister, the minister of loneliness. Yeah, the ministry of loneliness. Oh, wow. So, um, so Japan just appointed um, someone as. The, you know, the head of the Ministry of Loneliness because it's such a huge epidemic in that country. Wow. And how do you address loneliness? You're not going to necessarily address it through, you know, any specific tech solution or any um, set of data that's going to convince people that, hey, you know, you're really not all that alone. It's not going to help them. Mm-hmm. Really what you need is to create uh, experiences that grow affection. And the arts, in particular, I think music, uh, are some of the best tools for doing that to address the epidemic of loneliness, and then on a you know bigger scale, this idea of togetherness is something that is a, a shared uh, a shared piece of work because we have these really big issues that we need to face as a as a race, absolutely as a humanity, right? We have to deal with climate change uh, and adapt, adapt. We have to um, address you know food and water equity and justice around all that stuff. We have to deal with racial justice. There's, there's so many of these really, really big things that we have to deal with, this kind of moral revolution mm-hmm. that the question then becomes, well, how do we build the togetherness around that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the arts 
artists and creatives come in because that's going to be our role is to grow a greater sense of togetherness, which is now my stated mission as an artist to the extent an artist can have a mission. It's, you know, uh, grow experiences or sorry, create experiences that grow a greater sense of togetherness. That's amazing. And I think that you describe so eloquently how all these experiences as a generalist have brought you to really your master of a trade of this togetherness, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it will become a trade. Yeah. Togetherness makers. <laughs> if there's a, a minister of loneliness, I guess there could be a minister of togetherness. <laughs> well, and I'm sure in your all's experience in, in healthcare, you know, as providers, but also people that experience it yourselves. Yeah. It's like, oh gosh, how do I feel like I belong in this practice? How do I feel like I belong in this, um, even in this in this room? You know, like all those different things are they're just so important for people's identity, self worth, and and then how much self care they're going to take of themselves. Mm-hmm. Their well being. Yeah, right. you can only do so much, right? You right. can. I mean, there's some things you can do to help fix things. I'm sure, but like when someone comes in and they're obviously not caring for themselves. You solve for that. Mm-hmm. But, right. There's a much bigger, much bigger problem there, and you have to tap into all the, all of the different facets that, that then play into right. their and, care and, and their well-being. And and tapping into those facets, you know, probably is a very broad thing. You got to pull on a lot of different resources and a lot of different reference points and experiences, um, and and how you do that is. I'm sure a challenge that you all are facing and a challenge that mm-hmm. all future healthcare <laughs> providers are going to be chase, uh, chasing, especially as we face an you know, increasingly aging population. Yeah. Ben, I am so impressed by all of your work. Um, you have curated a variety of events and experiences, um, including work at the Speed Art Museum and the Lincoln Center. And when you're when you're working on a project, I'm just curious how you consider your clients' needs while blending in your own creative preferences. Yeah, well, um, I think identifying early on the purpose of the gathering, which sometimes is as simple as, hey, you know, um, people want to get together and see some live music, you know. But I think even within that, you can accept that, or you can say, okay, well, what is the space that we're gathering in? You know, what's What's the audience experience? Are they going to be standing? Are they going to be seating? Are they going to be, you know, is alcohol going to be involved? Because that can really influence things. Um, you know, is it going to be night or day? Like, and thinking about those boundaries and then starting to sculpt a purpose out of that. So, you know, when I work with a, you know, a big venue or arts presenter like Lincoln Center, um, I like to hop on the phone with them and say, hey, you know, this series is called you know, the all together now series. So what does that, what does that mean? And what are you trying to accomplish with this series? Um, and if they, depending on what they say, which often includes, you know, that they want to bring together a diversity of artists, they want to cross pollinate, you know, and do all these things, then I will actually swap members of my personal band out to create an experience that does that. Um, when I'm traveling, I'll try to bring in local um, talent to incorporate into the show mm-hmm. so that it feels like it's has a homegrown quality to it um, and then at the event itself I'll try to create some activities that can create t- togetherness um, you know one of the things that I do with my own shows is I have a bike walk ride program so trying to address the environmental impact of the audience coming to the show because I can handle what I how I get there and how my band gets <laughs> right. there but the audience is like that's more than 90% of the carbon footprint of the show is how the audience gets there. So um, encouraging people to bike, walk, or take public transit or carpool. And I do that by offering tokens at the merch table. So if you bike, walk, or ride, honor system, (laughs) uh, you know, you can get $5 off the merch table or get a, you know, a gift of that value. Um, That's amazing. So little things like that, I think can, can come around, but you know, more and more arts presenters are starting to see themselves as part of the um, social impact ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's new. I think arts presenters saw themselves as part of the cultural fabric, as the um, maybe gatekeepers or curators of, you know, a, a, an arts community. 
but only now are we starting to understand like, oh, there's some actual social metrics that we can capture from these experiences. Yeah. The people who are here, the people who are not here, um, the activities that they do in those environments, the activities that they don't get to do in those environments, and, uh, and, and, and start to see like, as, as corporations and foundations really begin to focus more and more on diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, we start to see that through arts programming and experiential programming, we can start to have impact on some of the metrics that these companies and foundations are looking to improve on. Absolutely. Wow, that's an incredible example of just thinking about different stakeholders and people that you don't normally associate with the arts. I mean, you don't think of corporate businesses necessarily linking to the arts to improve their own goals and initiatives, but it's a pretty powerful collaboration uh, there. Right. Um, so in 2018, you won an Emmy for your score, Bass Ballet. Can you tell us a little bit about that specific project and why you think it was so successful in reaching a very large audience? Right, well, it's continuing the topic that we've been talking about, right? It's this transdisciplinary, it's, you know, um, touching on a range of things. So um, baseball is understood by a, a huge swath of the population as a, you know, a big athletic event. A lot of people gather to watch it because a lot of people experienced it as kids and, you know, they either wanted to be pros or really enjoyed going to the games to see the pros play. Um, and these, these folks are, are really incredible athletes, the, the baseball players, you know, and then you look across the board and you see base ballet or you see um, ballet um, and you see also incredible athletes that have devoted, you know, much of their life, you know, um, to being incredible dance artists and care for their body and being able to leap and lift and jump right. around. Um, and so there's obviously shared disciplines there, but rarely do those two things come together for cultural reasons mm-hmm. um, and for, you know, specifically maybe um, cultural reasons that are perpetuated about male athletes. And so the goal of base ballet was to cross over those worlds. So ideally to get some of the baseball players, you know, moving and to also get uh, ballet dancers out on the field, the baseball field. So we we, we shot it um, at the San Francisco, (laughs) is it the, it was the athletics, I guess. Um, baseball stadium and uh, Ben Needham Wood was the was the choreographer on that along with Wes Kraken I can't remember his last name off the top of my head <laughs> but they were really looking for music for that and I had worked with Ben Needham Wood when he was here at the Louisville Ballet and um, they were looking for some music that would help you know communicate that that was you know muscular but also flowing um, that kind of strength in motion was the was the key word for for that score and um, it was an episodic series that aired on ABC television and um, got some really great attention and eventually won a a little regional Emmy for that so that was that was a cool thing to be a part of because it really just started as a an idea in a room like this Mm -hmm. where it's like oh we should do something that mixes baseball and this And then, you know, the, the dancers, the choreographer and the company out there that they were working with really just picked up the phone and uh, took some meetings and brought it all together. That's really incredible. Awesome. Um, and I think the amount of learning from all parties was probably equally as incredible yeah, know, from yeah. all the different. And I think it could continue, obviously. I mean, there's the often kind of smirked about stories of, you know, football players doing ballet and you know, maybe even vice versa, mm-hmm. although I think there's less stories about ballet dancers doing, doing football. football. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, that transdisciplinary approach where you're, you know, looking at it, you know, dancers don't often focus on high impact interval training, right. but that's like the life of these athletes. So how can that influence and help, how could hit training help um, dancers be more powerful mm-hmm, right. and create a, a more in, in intense show? Furthermore, how can dancers' flexibility and flow and motion and balance, huge, right, and, and athletics influence how baseball players play their game? That's right. There's a lot to learn through this kind of shared knowledge mm-hmm. and, and this range of experience. And it often doesn't get shared because we, we tend to um, 
to work like we shop, where we want to go to the shoe district, right? right. We want to go to the um, food court, right? And so we, we convene experts of, of similar or even the same field to answer questions that we think the answers are in that field. But what we're learning is that we can probably find solutions when we assemble people that have really different backgrounds. Absolutely. Um, especially when we're talking about the pace of innovation that we need to do to get these solutions in time. We can't really afford to just have lots of siloed conversations. We really need to have collective um, conversations where people can share, dream, and, and analogize together. Analogize? Analogize together. <laughs> well, and going back to your comment earlier, encouraging sampling for all the different you know, all the different um, groups is a way to a way to move forward. Well, I'm thinking of it as sampling as mm -hmm. opposed to just like screwing around. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I think that that is helpful um, because I think a lot of people feel really bad when they bring their resume. I know I do. Uh, now that I try, you know, I'm, I'm working in these different corporate sectors and you know arts presenting organizations and I bring my resume and it's like uh, I did a data sonification sculpture uh, and then I did a virtual music app and then I also you know have worked with a marketing agency and you know some of my work that really bears my thought today is my work at Canopy um, where I where I do you know, media and production storytelling essentially um, helping companies incorporate, measure, and grow their social or environmental impact. So thinking about impact, thinking about metrics, thinking about how com what companies are looking for when they invest in things and how that can innovate how arts investment goes to help bring about more diversity, more inclusive programming. Yeah. It's, it's all kind of coming together. And, and the willingness to switch between those disciplines and the openness to what it brings, um, I think is, will in the end be fruitful, even though right now it can be confusing to others and myself even. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes perfect sense to us. I feel like you're our kindred spirit because, you know, in academia and in healthcare, you're taught to specialize in one thing. You know, you're, you're going to be really, really good at pediatric obesity or, you know, critical care and and this whole podcast came about because we, to your point, like wanted to sample different ideas and different ways of doing things. And so I, I love what you're saying. And learn from one another. Yeah. yeah. So Ben, in addition to being a musician and a multifaceted creative, faceted creative, you are an incredible advocate for both people and the earth, our land. Can you tell us a little bit more about your advocacy work? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think starting very early in my career, I was exposed to artists like Silas House and Pete Seeger and Odetta, the, you know, these, these artists that um, incorporate activism into their art, um, the, the expression of that art, uh, but also, you know, any, any way that the products support the community. So when they're, you know, when Pete Seeger was putting on shows or when he noticed that, um, you know, the Hudson River was really dirty, he got a boat and started floating up and down the river, <laughs> putting on shows to clean up the Hudson River, right? Um, his clear water campaign. Um, and then, you know, Silas House worked, you know, incredibly hard to um, slow and stop the practice of mountaintop removal strip mining in Apo central Appalachia. Um, so it, I was exposed to all that stuff very early on through my music, and it has just pervaded everything that I do, and I try to you know, even very early on in my career was trying to think of like, well, how can this album help? How can this show help? And um, it's become, you know, it, over the years, it was somewhat challenging sometimes because it wasn't industry standard. Um, and I ran into booking agents, managers, um, and other agents that they just didn't understand it. And they thought it was a waste of time. They thought it was a waste of money. Mm -hmm. Uh, they thought it was just a waste of energy, essentially, to be throwing all this, all this, you know, giving away money that didn't need to be given, didn't need quotes around that to be given away, mm -hmm. um, sharing space and, and equity uh, in projects and in shows um, 
in a way that was more about values than it was about economics. So when I would do a collaborative show, uh, if it was with an artist who was, you know, much lesser known than me, I would still split the show half and half. Even though I, you know, it was obviously my audience that was bringing there, but from an equity standpoint, we hadn't, we both invested the same amount of time in coming on that event right. and bringing those people together around that cause. So that values first approach um, did cause a tremendous amount of friction in my in my career, you know, some of which I'm still climbing out of, you know, um, but I think that it's really the only way to approach. Um, a business, and we're learning that now. You know, we're seeing, uh, you know, lots of, you know, prime examples. You know, Patagonia being a value-first organization, right. where they're just saying, like, well, I mean, we just need to work with organics. We, we got to work with some organic fabrics, mm-hmm. and then, and then everybody being like, well, you can't do that because it's too cost too much, or the machinery's not there, or the farmer, and like them just saying, well, this is what we got to do. So let's figure out how to do it, mm-hmm. and being responsible for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I mean, just one of thousands of examples of companies that are making decisions every day. And, you know, as an artist, sometimes we don't think of ourselves as entrepreneurs or as business owners, but we certainly are. And through that, we have an opportunity to make a really big impact on our community and people. And uh, in my field, that takes the form of, you know, products, CDs or vinyl that right. are um, going out there and, you know, the sale of them are supporting cause or mission Mm -hmm. Um, my shows being conscious of their environmental footprint Mm -hmm. um, and trying to make sure that something from the ticket price is going back to a localized um, impact oriented something or another you know it can be anywhere from livability infrastructure to food justice it can it has a wide range of of causes that I try to support because every time I bring a show to somewhere I listen to that community so next weekend I'll be performing in you know near Chattanooga in South Pittsburgh and, you know, teamed up with a local dance company and teamed up with uh, a couple local organizations to provide like give back programs through that. And That's great. it cuts into the margins. Like I don't make as much money, but A, I enjoy it and I'm inspired. And as an artist, that's currency to me. Like staying inspired and, and creative mm-hmm. is crucial to me continuing my business. And then secondly, it helps, um, raise the value of my show to the community, which at the end of the day is kind of my clients, I guess. Right. Uh, it's a long way of saying, I think that it's essential for all businesses to have a social and environmental commitment, and I would even push them to go further and have a, a, a mission that's tied directly to their operations. So not just something that you do when someone calls you up and like, hey, will you do a free show for Roxfam? Um, but but really having that tied to your, your mission, what's the thing that you're focused on? Because then you can find other like-minded or stakeholders that, that also have, have shared values. Right. You can push that stuff forward. So then you talk about the importance of mission, and I'm going to read directly from uh, your website. Uh-oh. But you, <laughs> you... I hope I spelled it <laughs> You describe the importance of togetherness to include rather than exclude, to help humans grow their affection for each other and the environment. And I, and Emily and I, I think talked about this and both believe, you know, that's just such an incredibly powerful mission statement for you. And I, I think one of the things that we struggled with when we started Rise and have been involved in, you know, education or healthcare is, you know, the development of a mission statement and coming to terms with, you know, what that means and settling on that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with, you know, this mission of togetherness and how that's kind of evolved over your career? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it started with the listening of a podcast called On Being, Christy Tibbetts <laughs> On Being. The origin story of my mission statement was, you know, kind of, I guess, late 2019 I was trying to figure out what all this was meaning I was heading into the birth of our third child and trying to figure out like how I need to get really focused my time is about to get yet more limited mm-hmm. um, and um, I'm really trying to deepen my impact rather than broaden my impact and also just kind of taking in all that was going on in the world we were still um, in the Trump campaign there was you know tremendous you know injustices going on much of the work that I've done around environmental advocacy and social work had 
been you know, erased, eradicated, swept away. Mm-hmm. And I was um, just trying to figure out what, is, what does this all mean? How are we going to make the turns that we need to make to help each other? And I was listening to On Being, a wonderful radio program uh, by Krista Tippett. And um, she had a guest on the show named Jacqueline Novogratz, who was talking about her new um, her, her book called A Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. Um, and she was talking about kind of the experiences of impact investing that she'd done with her company Access, uh, um, Accent Ventures, I think, and um, with, that had done micro lending programs in various countries around, developing countries around the world. And she spoke so beautifully of her experience on um, focusing on, on the values and the importance of you know, the need in these communities. And not just as, as the right thing to do, but also an, an important uh, opportunity mm-hmm. for investment. And she used the word togetherness in her talk on, on, um, on air. And that word just hit me. I, the, the thought of togetherness and thinking about all my shows, it was kind of one of those moments where I saw all this, this constellation of things that looked separate before. Right. All the things that we've talked about so far and so many more that just looked like separate little dots in the sky suddenly made a single picture. Then it was like, oh, togetherness. That's the thing I've been doing since I was tiny. Right. Is mm-hmm. I wanted to just create more togetherness. I wanted to get more people together experiencing life together and feeling like they belonged in that space. And, you know, she continues on to argue in that uh, manifesto for a moral revolution that while we are innovating our technology, while we are um, developing new policies um, to encourage investment in these sort of social and environmental programs that we need to invest in to ensure a more stable future, mm-hmm. um, none of that really is going to happen without an, a revolution of the kind of moral purpose of why we're doing these things. Mm-hmm. Because it can't just be about the economic opportunity of rotating the renewables. It can't just be about the um, new technologies being developed for medical assistance for you know being able to live longer and healthier. We need to share that around so that the technology is not just accessible to the people who have the money to pay for it, but for the people who you know live around this world that need to be able to benefit from that. And I just found myself pondering well, gosh, what's my role as an artist in all of that? I'm not a policy maker. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of capital to invest to help support new entrepreneurial ventures. What's my role as an artist? And I reflected on the writings of Wendell Berry. I love Wendell Berry. Kentucky <laughs> author, activist, essayist, poet. And he's got um, an essay called It All Turns on Affection which is a beautiful essay that basically boils boils down to that we tend to protect what we care about Mm -hmm. and we grow our care and affection through experience and intimate, intimate experiences and knowledge. It's the reason why it's, you know, upsetting to read in the news that there has been a natural disaster or a shooting and, you know, lots of people are hurt, but you can still continue on with your day. But if you're, you know, sister, brother, mother, father, or you know, have been in a car wreck or had something major happen to them, it will stop your day. Absolutely. It's not because there's one life is more valuable than the other, it's because you have a deeper affection for that person, for their life, and um, it just hits you harder. And, and that's what we need to do. We need to create more affection. And as an artist, that's, that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we do. We grow, we grow affection around people, places, things, time, all that stuff. So I see in the ecosystem of things that need doing, um, I see my role and the role of many artists as helping grow affection and create a greater sense of togetherness, belonging, which can um, you know, help remedy the sense of loneliness of people and isolation that people are feeling which as you all know as healthcare providers is such a huge contributor to overall well-being absolutely and um so so yeah that's that's where my mission has come from 
And you know, those, the mission statement that I ended up coming with was, you know, since I'm an arts presenter and I create experiences, then I'm, I want to create experiences that grow a greater sense of togetherness. Because I'm not going to just make togetherness. That's not how it happens. It's, it's, it's a cultivating process. Um, it, it's many, many touches from lots of different people that, that create a sense of togetherness. So my, the experience that I, experiences that I create are meant to help grow that sense of togetherness. I love that. <laughs> Me too. Then you have mentioned to us um, that you, you know, encourage uh, people coming to a show to bike. You bike yourself. Do you have any interesting stories from any of your, I'm just really curious to know if you have any interesting um, stories from your biking adventures around togetherness. I am too, and I want to add one thing. So I try to bike with my kids to the grocery store, a coffee shop, and we have a bike wagon and I am out of breath after just a couple minutes when everybody's in the wagon and all the stuffies and you know all the things um so i am really curious about how you bike with equipment or if you do that (laughs) because if you're all biking to the show or decreasing your carbon footprint i would imagine you still have a lot of gear and logistically that seems very impressive (laughs) to me yeah so um we we did these music tours that we call ditch the van tours and they're all by bicycle, um, self-supported, which means there's not a vehicle behind us hauling stuff. Uh, and the idea behind that is that we want to um, actually slow down. It's not about being green or even sustainable. It's about using the limitation and the boundary of the bicycles to slow us down and be more intentional about the way that we travel. Because I think boundaries make really good art. Absolutely. And, um, you know, so we, we haul all of our own gear. My drummer hauls a little drum set behind him. Oh my gosh. You know, and uh, I haul. I my, like her just thinking about that. I, I haul my, my cello uh, beside me on a surly um, big dummy, which is an extended frame bicycle. And uh, we travel from show to show. And from the years of 2009 through 2013 ish, we did about nearly 6,000 miles of touring around the country. Um, some of it was intermodal, which means we would, you know, load the bikes onto trains every once in a while to kind of get over things like, I don't know, the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> right. Uh, small barrier. <laughs> small, yeah. small barrier. Um, and, you know, there were some really beautiful experiences along the way. I mean, just, in, you know, incredible people that would take us in, host us, um, wonderful stops on the old, you know, blue roads of the, of the United States. Um, but the one that the experience that truly sticks with me in a really powerful way was um, riding our bikes into East Wilmington, uh, Delaware, which I mean is is a, is an incredible city and at one time was just really vibrant and has since fallen on hard times. And the thing that you learn about when you ride your bicycle is that um, much like many of us don't use our front door because we drive to the back door. That's kind of how cities have gotten flipped on their head as we've developed the new highway infrastructure is that instead of taking the road that used to be Main Street, you know, that old highway, that old highway, um, (laughs) that used to be the front door of these cities, you know, so you drive by all these beautiful old houses that are in disrepair because they're they're not getting the investment because the investment went to faster, more efficient roads. Um, And so we find ourselves on bicycles because we can't, it's illegal to ride on highways, nor do we really want to. Um, riding in the old front doors and it's kind of like sneaking into a city and we were riding through there and um, you know as we're coming in there's all these beautiful old road houses that still have the infrastructure for people being able to bring their horse in between the houses and you know every third house is boarded up but the ones that are not boarded up have incredible vibrant life people are hanging out on porches they're yelling across the street at each other people are playing in the street and um, here we are, three kind of hippies on a bicycle, kind of riding through, just waving. And uh, this little boy kind of runs up next to me. He's probably seven or eight years old. And he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, well, we're, just, we're doing a music tour just by bicycle. And he kind of, he's jogging along beside me. He thinks about it. He's like, oh, that makes sense. 
can I go? <laughs> and my bicycle, since it's an extended frame bicycle, it kind of has what amounts to a big padded skateboard on the top of the back of it, on the back wheel. And so when I, somewhat jokingly, was like, oh, sure, come on, he hopped on my bicycle. Yeah, way. And as someone who traveled a lot by planes, trains, and automobiles, this is not something that happens, right? Like somebody <laughs> right. Just, somebody right. just come along and say, hey, can I hop in the Your airplane suitcase. with you? Can I, you know, hey, can we hop in the tour van with you? Like, that's not, you, no, you, right. don't, you don't do that. So he hops on there, and I just kind of like, all right. Here we let's, go. Let's just, let's just ride for a little bit and see where this goes. He, he rides for a little bit, and, uh, you know, after a while, I'm like, how far do you want to go? Where you want to go? And he's like, far. Which felt very melancholy uh, and bittersweet. Yeah. Because I'm sure he, he was he saw it as an opportunity maybe to, to change something or was just maybe just playing around, playing with the idea. Maybe he was sampling. Right, that's right. <laughs> um, and so I just kept riding. And, you know, six, seven, eight blocks, you know, at some point it started getting, you know, a, a little bit further than it felt comfortable to have this kid on my bicycle, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, at that point, he was just like, man, my mom was calling for me. I got to go. And I hopped off my bicycle. <laughs> but it was the sort of interaction um, that does not happen when you have passive barriers around you. Yeah. You know? So doors and windows, you can't roll up your windows and, on a bicycle, um, regardless of how nice or bad the neighborhood is. Um, and because those barriers were down, we were able to have a really meaningful interaction with somebody that we would have never had a chance to do that, nor would we have been on that road. Right. So able to experience his neighborhood. Yeah. I think the bike tours, in addition to being great ways for myself and the other musicians to slow down mm -hmm. and input this incredible, incredible country that we're passing through and by and over. Um, I think it's also an important lesson in making sure that your company, your practice, um, yourself, are are communicating that your your boundaries are low and you're accessible. Right. Um, because, as we all think about, you know, racial justice and what it means for our daily lives and how we can contribute to a, a more equitable society, a more just society, um, I think it's important to think about not just the active things that we do in our daily life, whether it's you know, in our practice or on the boards that we sit on or in the products that we buy, but um, also the passive things like where we live and, and, and what it looks like if you're standing outside of that to, to like look at it and think about whether or not you can, as an outsider, whether you could access you as a person. Mm -hmm. um, so that can happen in some really beautiful, like fulfilling ways, like just walking taking a bus, riding a bicycle, um, that provides an experience, a sort of tactile experience for yourself that can help you understand the perspective of other people that don't have nice, tightly sealed cars with good stereo systems, that don't have AirPods, that don't have, you know, you know, really nice phone connections. They might still have like a flip phone that mm -hmm. takes three minutes to type on, we don't have voice to text, you know, all these different things that help reduce friction in our lives, but but by us having it introduces friction in other people's lives. Mm -hmm. I think it's really good to do that. And the bicycle for me provided that lowering that boundary. What a wonderful way to end our conversation. You have given us so much to think about and uh, process and talk about later on. Thank you so much. We like to end our podcast with a series of rapid fire questions that everybody gets. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so first thing that comes to mind, uh, our first question is, what is your favorite leadership quote or book? So my favorite uh, leadership quote is from the martial artist, Bruce Lee. He's of course famous <laughs> for all of his transdisciplinary approach. He really like sampled a wide range of uh, experiences and is, is famous for his workout re regime. Right. Really unique workout regime and fighting style and his diet and everything. And he said, that, you know, adapt what is useful, reject what is useless, and add what is specifically your own. And I think in the age of 
so much change happening so rapidly and automation and you know what it means to be human yeah. in the digital age i think that's a beautiful idea because it it gets to the heart of it is adaptation be an adapter and um, let go of what's not working and incorporate some of yourself make it your own mm -hmm. that's great. great okay question number two um what is one thing on your wish list related to healthcare? and there's no Right or wrong answer, anything. <laughs> okay, good, because I would pick the wrong one. I um, really feel like we need a revolution in this country around our understanding and the way that we speak of addiction mm -hmm. and recovery. Um, addiction is a disease, and I think that you know there's so many stigmas that go uh, that just spin around it and make it. A f you know, introduce friction into the healthcare and well-being of patients um, and doctors, and I just starting to really call it out as substance abuse. Uh, um, substance abuse disorder is is so so important and can lift the veil on so much care, policy, funding, all that stuff. And in other countries, they're doing it. They have made you know tremendous strides, and their population is happier and healthier for it. And we've just got to stop crucifying people that are struggling with a disease, um, because we did we did that, and we know the results of that. You know, people seizures used to be being possessed by a demon, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, and used to be a matter of choice, like they're choosing to do that or choosing to be crazy. Right? Those are not. It's not. Those are diseases. Right. Uh, and, and disorders, and we, we've got to treat, treat addiction as such so that we can properly move forward because there's so many people whose lives are just ruined by the stigma of being, quote, an addict mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or, quote, addicted. Mm -hmm. um, we got way out of that. we got to move that forward. I agree. Our last question is uh, about learning. So we both believe in lifelong learning and the power of that. And we're curious to know if you could learn anything new for fun, not necessarily related to your work in the arts or advocacy or all the things that you do, what would it be? Tap dancing. <laughs> that was fast. That was fast. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I promised myself when the, when the pandemic began that I was going to do pack, you know, tap dancing lessons. That was going to be my thing. There were so many people that were getting into music uh, to learn music. And I was like, I'm going to finally do tap dancing because I really wanted to be a dancer. Um, <laughs> Sample something new. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Would you tap dance to your own music or like, do you want to learn to figure out how to tap dance with a cello, but yeah, <laughs> if it can be done, I'll figure it out. <laughs> well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. Well, good. I'm glad. Thanks for having me. Ben Solee has blended a lot of different careers into one. Although he may be best known as a musician, he has truly taken the gift of music and put it in a variety of different areas. He mentioned the concept of specializing versus generalizing and noted that he has really worked to be a jack of many trades rather than a master of one. And right off the bat, I was struck by how this is such a different approach than what we often see in healthcare. In our fields, we spend most of our careers becoming an expert in one thing. Oftentimes, it's a really obscure thing. What a unique shift in perspective to have the freedom to dabble in a lot of different things. Audra, I agree. It's definitely a different approach. Although the craft of making music has guided Ben in his entrepreneurial endeavors, Making music turned into producing music and then went on to theater. Records, Ben said, felt too narrow, and so he continued to sample. Ben did music tours alone around the United States and experimented with a virtual reality music app. His experiences resulted in the use of a variety of platforms and one common theme, and that was togetherness. Yes, he absolutely has dabbled in a lot of things. I had no idea. I mean, when we asked him to be on the show, I just thought we were going to be interviewing a well-known musician, not a musician who um, has a lot of different jobs. But Same in for all me. These different, <laughs> in all these different jobs, Ben noticed that people got together and had a meaningful experience. 
where they experienced a sense of belonging, big things tended to happen. It was this revelation that led to Ben's quest to create experiences that grow affection and that foster a sense of togetherness. In fact, Ben's mission statement includes this entire concept of togetherness. He said he wants to deepen his impact rather than broaden his impact. And he noted that while we are innovating and developing new policies, we also really need to be guided by a moral purpose. In Ben's case, that's his environmental impact. So in the world of healthcare, these abstract feelings, if you will, can feel a little uncomfortable. (laughs) I feel like we tend (laughs) to want an algorithm, a care plan. We want to lean towards obscure clinical experts to find solutions for our really tough problems. However, Audra, when you and I interviewed Ben, I couldn't help but feel that we could learn from Ben's concept of togetherness. So I kind of would like to stick with that idea for a minute, the idea of togetherness, that is, and talk a little bit more about it. I agree. I I think it's something I need another minute or two to wrap my head around. And, (laughs) you know, this entire idea, I think, is a little outside of my comfort zone because it's just, quite frankly, so different from how I and probably also you have been trained to think. Um, But my takeaway from Ben was that Creating opportunities where people feel a sense of belonging is ultimately a shared piece of work. And, you know, when you think of it in that context, I think there's certainly a lot of merit in creating experiences that have inclusivity in mind. And when people feel like they belong, things really do change. You know, I I think in my own personal experiences and Times when I felt uncomfortable and when I felt really at ease and want to work together. And when I find someone that I can share a common interest with, whether that be motherhood or nursing or not being able to dance, whatever it may be, (laughs) I am immediately more comfortable and more open to sharing my ideas and to working together. You said that really well, Audra. You know, Ben mentioned that we have big issues that we need to face as a human race, climate change, food and water equity, justice, racial justice. Those are just to name a few. He illustrated the concept of using togetherness to tackle an issue. For example, I'm thinking back to when he talked about his bike, walk, ride program. In this program, he encouraged his fans to decrease their carbon footprint by biking, walking, or riding to his shows. In exchange, he offered tokens at the merchandise table or a small gift at the show. People came for the music, but changed their behavior in the process. And this was such an impressive concept to me. This truly led to concert participants deepening the impact of the show by changing their behavior in the process of getting there. It's certainly an impressive concept. And it made me think about what could happen if we tried to build togetherness. If the arts and artists and creatives can create these experiences that grow a sense of togetherness, how could we use that as healthcare providers? You know, Ben has made an environmental impact, but Could we partner with these events to draw greater attention to public health issues, to health disparities, or even healthy lifestyle changes? Would we have a more captive audience than us just individually discussing these issues in exam rooms? Audra, you know, it's an interesting thought and certainly one worth exploring further. Ben got me thinking, maybe togetherness isn't your jam, But if it's not, then what is? (laughs) In other words, as a leader, what is your mission? What are you most focused on? And how are you finding like-minded stakeholders, those who share similar values that you can work with? Mission-driven work, whether it includes the concept of togetherness or something completely different, is important in any field, in my opinion. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're thinking about mission-driven work, I think it's also so important to think about, as you said, these like-minded people who 
share similar values. And Ben highlighted the importance of working together with partners. He often brings in local talent and tries to, what he says, cross-pollinate or bring in diversity in the arts and his shows. And not only does he do that in the music industry, he cross-pollinates with a variety of industries and talents. I think a great example of this was bass ballet. I mean, how how cool of a project was this? This was a project where Ben actually won an Emmy in 2018. This endeavor was truly transdisciplinary. He was successful in reaching a huge audience. Ben noted that baseball and ballet rarely come together. Audra, you may be able to see this connection since, as I recently learned, you were a baseball statistician in your former years. <laughs> <laughs> However, it's something that I didn't see, um, you know, coming together on the surface. Maybe it was the different types of talent. Maybe it is the predominantly male versus female focus. Maybe it is the contrast in the audiences. But the crossover in the world's with ballet dancers on the field and baseball players in the studio was something that ended up being truly magical. I I couldn't agree more. I I thought the whole concept was just so outside of the box. And, you know, what Ben taught us was that we have so much to learn from shared knowledge. And we often don't share because we, quote unquote, work like we shop And I loved Ben's analogy about this. He said, you know, when you need shoes and you're at a mall, you go to the shoe store. And when you want food, you go to the food court. In my girl's case, the cookie company. Um, (laughs) But we also do this in healthcare. You know, we, we go to a cardiologist for a heart problem. We go to an oncologist when we're diagnosed with cancer. And in healthcare, we certainly should do that to an extent, right? We we want clinical experts that are well-versed in the problems that we're facing. But I think that we can also really find value in finding solutions to healthcare issues by sampling, by asking people with different backgrounds and perspectives what they think. They, just like with the Space Ballet Project, may have new approaches that we have never dreamed of. Audra, Ben gave us a lot to think about, and one of the things that I absolutely loved is his story of his bike tour. Although Ben's focus has often been on his environmental impact, he noted this tour was simply because he and his crew wanted to slow down. They used a bicycle to slow down and to be more intentional about their travel. He gave the analogy that many of us don't use our city's front door anymore. Instead of taking Main Street or the front door of cities, we use interstates to drive into the back door. In this experience, Ben noted that he saw houses that were old and boarded up, but he also saw houses that had vibrant life. Absolutely. And the story of the little boy that hopped on Ben's bike was an incredible reminder to me that, you know, when we have passive barriers, whether that be car doors or windows or just big buildings, we don't have meaningful interactions. It just physically isn't possible. And I couldn't help but think when I heard his story about how we as healthcare providers can make ourselves more accessible. In other words, how do we communicate that our boundaries are low? Audra, quite frankly, this idea makes my head spin when I think about it in the context of healthcare. What would we learn, excuse me, if we made ourselves more accessible? How could that guide care? This, I feel like, could be an entirely different podcast episode. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I think that we could probably have three different podcast episodes from Ben's one interview. I learned so much from Ben. And, you know, I, I think that... One of the things that um, was a big theme for me was just the value of sampling. I learned about the value of being a generalist sometimes and and taking what you learn from being a generalist to inform your day-to-day work. And I also learned the value of collaboration, of finding shared values, but taking the time to slow down 
and finding those values outside of the box. And maybe thinking outside of the box means that you're shopping in different places, or maybe it's that you're ditching your windows and doors for a walk or a bike ride. You may be surprised and delighted at what you learned, ultimately deepening your impact. Thanks so much for learning with us. This podcast isn't about healthcare. It's about how we learn from the experiences of others to make healthcare better. Rise with Emily and Audra was produced with Resonate Recordings. The original song, Rise, was composed and performed by Alex Crum. This really shouldn't come as a surprise Knock us down a thousand times In the mornings we will rise This really shouldn't come as a surprise Knock us down a thousand times In the mornings we will rise Okay Shouldn't come as a surprise Cause every morning we will rise